John's story is a story of God's amazing grace. His mother died when he was seven years old from tuberculosis. At 11 years of age, he went on his first sea voyage with his dad, who was the captain in, in the merchant navy. At 19 years of age, he was kidnapped, and he was forcibly enlisted into the Royal Navy, which he later deserted from. When he was captured, he was put in chains, he was flogged, he was put in prison until he convinced his superiors to let him go and let him work on a slave ship. His life was going downhill. This is what he said of himself. He said, I sinned with a high hand and made it my study to tempt and seduce others. John became so wicked that his own father disowned him. After a while, he began to buy and sell slaves himself. Eventually, he was sold into slavery. Later on in life, he was on a ship sailing back home when the ship was hit by a severe storm. The ship was about to sink when, when John cried out to God for God's mercy. And God miraculously intervened. John said that it wasn't then that he was converted. But that moment did turn his heart toward God. Later on, he got saved. He was miraculously changed. He began to preach God's word. He became a preacher. But John isn't known for the messages that he preached. He's known for the songs that he wrote. One of the songs that John wrote is, is one of the most well-known songs in the world. It goes like this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but, but now I see. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. Tis grace that has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. And if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5 this morning. If you don't have your Bible, don't worry. We're going to have the words up on the screen. This morning, we're, we're wrapping up our series on 1 Peter that we've called Alias, How to Survive in a Hostile World. We've called it that because twice in this letter, Paul calls Christians, believers, aliens. He says that we are strangers. This world is not our home. And if you can let that one truth sink into your mind and your heart, that one truth will change everything. This world is not our home. And because this world is not our home, it is hostile to who we are and what we believe and how we desire to live. And so the question that we have to ask is how can we survive in a hostile world? And, and that's what Peter answers in these five chapters. He tells us how we as followers of Jesus can survive in a world that is diametrically opposed to who we are and what we believe and how we desire to live. The first thing that, that Peter tells us is that we have to remember who we are. 
He tells us that we have been chosen by God. We have been born into God's family through the blood of Jesus. And because of that, we have a priceless inheritance awaiting us. We are joint heirs with Christ. The second thing that that Peter tells us is that we have to live with the future in mind. And Peter tells us about two future events that affect each and every one of us. The first is the revelation of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus, when Jesus will be revealed to the world. And then the second one is the judgment of God. And the Bible says we must all stand before the judgment seat of God, the judgment seat of Christ. And in light of these two future events, we should live in a way that honors and pleases God. The third thing that Peter tells us is that we need to connect with a spiritual family. He tells us that that God is building a temple. And, And in this temple that God is building, Jesus is the cornerstone upon which the temple is built. But then he tells us that each of us who are believers, who are Christians, are living stones connected to the cornerstone, interconnected with one another. You see, we need one another as we are walking through life. That's why it's so important if you're a follower of Jesus to get connected to a local church family. The fourth thing that Peter said is that we need to practice submission. Peter told us to submit to every human authority for the Lord's sake. There is God-ordained authority in life. And when we submit to that authority, God is using that submission to make us more like Jesus. The fifth thing Peter said is that we need to expect suffering. Now, there's suffering that we all face because we live in a fallen world. There's natural suffering. But the suffering that Peter is talking about here is suffering that we go through simply because we're a follower of Jesus. Paul said it this way. He said, those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The sixth thing that that Peter tells us we need to do is tied to, to connecting to a spiritual family. And that is we need to raise up biblical leaders. You see, in this temple, this church that, that God is building, God has appointed leaders. He calls them elders, shepherds, uh, bishops, who, who are called to guide, direct, and protect the church. And, and Peter tells us that we need to continually raise up more biblical leaders so that we will always have leadership in the church and so that We can plant other churches all around the world. The thing we learned last week is that we need to learn how to um, um, wage spiritual warfare. We have an enemy. The Bible says that he is a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Our enemy is Satan. And Satan doesn't just want to eat our lunch. Satan wants to eat us for lunch. And, And so Peter tells us that if we're going to have victory over Satan, we have to stay alert. We've got to know who he is, know how he operates, and we need to stand firm in our faith. But this morning as we wrap up this book, I want us to see the final thing that Peter tells us, and that is we have to stand firm in the grace of God. Now, as you read through the Bible, you discover that it is a story of God's grace from start to finish, from Genesis to Revelation. The Bible is a story 
of God's grace. Apart from God's grace, you and I would be hopelessly lost. But God has richly poured out his grace into our lives. And so if you have your Bibles open, I want you to follow along as I begin reading in verse 10 through verse 14. Here's what God says. In his grace, God called you to share in his eternal glory by means of Christ Jesus. So after you have suffered a little while, he will restore, support, and strengthen you, and he will place you on a firm foundation, all power to him forever. Amen. I've written and sent this short letter to you with the help of Silas, whom I commend to you as a faithful brother. My purpose in writing is to encourage you and assure you that what you are experiencing is truly part of God's grace for you. Stand firm in that grace. Your sister church here in Babylon sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet each other with Christian love. Peace be with all of you who are in Christ. Now, I want you to notice several things before we get into the meat of this passage. First, we're told that Silas helped Paul both write and deliver this message. Now, Silas is most likely the same Silas who went on missionary journeys with Paul. Silas was a leader in the early church. Most likely, Peter dictated this letter to Silas, and and then Silas delivered this letter to the churches. He read this letter to them, and then he explained the letter to them. So, So Peter had a partner in ministry whose name was Silas. Peter tells us that he is writing from Babylon because he says, your sister church in Babylon greets you. Now, even though there was a church in the literal city of Babylon, most people believe that Babylon here is a veiled reference to Rome. And the reason that that Peter would use a veiled reference to describe Rome is because Rome was the center of, of all of the persecution, all of the suffering that the Christians were going through. We see John doing this in in the book of Revelation as he calls Rome Babylon there. And then the final thing that we see is that Mark is there with Peter. This is most likely the the same Mark that that went on that first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas who who later deserted them and left because of perhaps he was scared, perhaps he didn't feel the calling, we don't know. But we do know that later on Barnabas wanted to bring Mark with them again and Paul said no and that caused Barnabas and Paul to split ways. This is the Mark who wrote the gospel of Mark. This is the Mark who became a traveling companion of Paul later on in life. Mark, even though he was a young man at this time, was was most likely a leader in the church at that day. And, And so that lets us know that we shouldn't allow our age to keep us from following God's call on our life. Now, as we look at this, this, these last four verses, Paul tells us his purpose in writing. And he tells us that in verse 12. And I want to give you the way that I I kind of frame this. He tells us that his purpose is to encourage Christians by maximizing God's grace and minimizing our present suffering. So Peter's purpose in writing this letter is to maximize God's grace while minimizing our suffering. And when we do that, it will encourage us. Verse 12 says this, my purpose is to encourage and assure you 
that you are what you are experiencing is part of the grace of God. You see, these believers were going through terrible persecution and suffering, and yet Paul says this is part of God's grace. Here's what I know. When we maximize God's grace, when we experience God's grace and understand God's grace in its fullest form, then our suffering, however great, will seem minimal compared to the joys that we experience through Christ and what lies ahead for us in eternity. Now, as we unpack these four verses that, that Peter ends with, I believe Peter gives us three things that we have to do if we're going to survive. Here's truth number one. We have to personally experience God's grace. We have to personally experience God's grace. It's not enough to know about God's grace. It's not enough to read about God's grace. We have to personally experience God's grace. Peter begins verse 10 this way in the Greek. He says, the God of all grace. I want you to say that with me. The God of all grace. Say it again. The God of all grace. I don't believe there is a more beautiful description of God in Scripture than that. God is the God of all power. He is omnipotent. God is the God of all wisdom. He is omniscient. God is everywhere present at the same time. He is omniscient. God is the God of all comfort, according to Paul. He gives us a peace that is beyond our ability to understand. We're told in Scripture that God is righteous. God is truth. God is just. God is holy. God is a number of things. But I want you to know for you and I today, I don't believe there is any greater thing than to realize that God, the God we can know, the God we can love, the God who loves us is a God of all grace. He is a God of undeserved, unearned favor. Everything. Absolutely everything that I have that is good in my life is a result of God's grace. And he is not a God of one grace. He's not a God of two graces. He's not a God of most grace. He's the God of all grace. And our God doesn't have a spoonful of grace. He doesn't have a bucket full of grace. He doesn't have a truckload of grace. He has an endless storehouse of grace. He is the inexhaustible fountain and source of grace that never runs dry. He is the God of all, every single bit of grace. When Moses had the privilege of, of seeing God. When God was passing by Moses, this is how God described himself. He said, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. When David, King David, who had committed heinous sins, 
was writing about God in Psalm 86. He said, but you, O Lord, are compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. When John the Apostle was was writing his his gospel, as he began that gospel in John chapter 1, he described Jesus this way. He said, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from the fullness of his grace, we have all received blessing after blessing. Did you hear that? From his grace, from the overflow of his grace, you and I have received blessing after blessing after blessing And then he said, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Christ Jesus. God has always been a God of grace from the beginning until the end. God is a God of all grace, but Jesus, Jesus personified grace in such a way that if we only will look at him, we cannot but see the grace of God. The Bible tells us that under the law, God demands righteousness from man. But under grace, God gives righteousness to man. Under the law, righteousness is based upon good works. But under grace, righteousness is based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Under the law, it only takes one sin, one sin, To make you a sinner condemned to death. But under grace, it only took one sinner, Savior, to take away all our sin. But listen, it's not enough to be able to explain grace. It's not enough to understand grace. We must experience grace. And the truth is, you will never truly understand grace. Until you experience grace. There are things that you can know hypothetically, theoretically. But listen, until you know God's grace experientially, you will never truly understand grace. Grace is how God deals with us from start to finish. And the amazing thing about God's grace is it comes in a variety of flavors. There is saving grace. Peter says, the God of all grace called you. What did he call you to? Salvation. The apostle Paul said in Titus chapter 2, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Now now focus on that phrase, the grace of God that brings salvation. Immediately we see that it's not the goodness of man that brings salvation, It's not the sincerity of our religion that brings salvation. It's the grace of God that brings salvation. But here's the deal. To understand God's grace, you'll never truly understand it apart from two adjectives. The first one is this, unconditional. God's grace is unconditional. There's no strings attached. There's nothing you have to do to earn it. There is no way that you can work for it. You don't have enough money to buy it. It is a gift. The Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith. It is a gift of God. 
That means that salvation is not based upon my performance. It's based on God's promise. It's not based upon my merit. It's based on God's mercy. It's not based on my goodness. Salvation is based on God's grace. But the problem is, is we have a poor understanding of grace. An example in the business world, banking world, is, is with, with loans. In a loan, you have what is called a grace period. You know, if your loan payment is due on the 1st, they have a grace period where as long as you get it in by the 10th or the 12th, they don't charge you anything. But if you don't get it in by the 10th or the 12th, you have a late fee, a late charge you have to pay. And they call that a grace period. And that's not really a grace period because grace, real grace, is unconditional. There's not a grace period. Grace is just grace. Let me ask you a question. How do you spell salvation? Well, not, not really spell it, but what do you think about when you think about salvation? Some people, when they think about salvation, they spell it this way, D-O, do. Salvation is based upon things I do. I go to church. I get baptized. I try to live a good life. I give money. Do. Some people spell salvation D-O-N-T, don't. There are things I don't do. I don't cheat on my wife. I, I don't steal. I, I, I don't say words that are bad words. I don't do certain things. But God spells salvation D-O-N-E, done. There's no strings attached. There's no fine print. When you accept Jesus as your Savior and Lord, he accepts you into his family, period, end of sentence. That's unconditional grace. But grace isn't only unconditional. Grace is undeserved. You see, you, you can't work enough to deserve it. You can't pay enough to buy it. No matter what you do from here on out for the rest of your life, you will never be good enough to deserve God's grace. God pours out his grace on us, not because of what we've done, but because of who he is. You can't earn it. What you can do is you can accept it, you can receive it, or you can reject it. You see, God offers his grace, but he doesn't force his grace. So when he extends his grace to us, we can either receive it, but as many as receive to him, to them he gives the right to become the children of God, or we can reject his grace. Now here's what that means. There's hope for the vilest person who has ever lived the most evil, wicked, disgusting person on this planet can obtain forgiveness for their sins. There is grace found in God. Since God is the God of all grace, whatever amount of grace is needed to cover our sins can be found in him. On the side of a plumbing truck was written these words. There's no place too deep, too dark, or too dirty to handle. And that's what God's grace is like. There is no place too deep, too dark, or too dirty for God's grace to not handle. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter who you've become, God's grace can save you. And here's the thing. Each and every one of us who have been saved by his grace 
are trophies of his grace. In God's trophy cabinet, the things that make him the most proud were there. We are his trophies of grace. They're saving grace. And then there is securing grace. Because of his grace, we get to share in his eternal glory. Peter says, after you've suffered a little while, he will place you on a firm foundation. On The important word there is he. You see, we don't get placed in that firm foundation because we hold on to him. We get placed in that firm foundation because he holds on to us. You see, his grace is a securing grace. His grace holds on to us. His grace never leaves us. His grace will never turn loose of us. There are some people that have this idea that that if I give my life to Jesus and then I mess up or I blow it or I, I stray away, then God won't love me anymore. No, God's grace is sufficient to secure your salvation forever and ever. Understand, His grace is sufficient. God's grace is sovereign. Peter tells us that these believers were going through horrible, terrible times. But the horrible, terrible times they were going through, Peter says, was part of God's grace for them. Don't miss that. Peter says their suffering is part of God's grace. Now, what does he mean? Remember what Paul said? All things work together for good. For those who love the Lord, who are called according to his purpose. What that means is that God uses even the pain. God uses even the problems we face in this life to perfect us and make us into who he created us to be. Now you're probably asking, does that mean that God causes the pain in my life? Sometimes he does. Look at me. Sometimes God causes the pain in our life. But there are other times in our life that the pain is caused by other things. But God is amazing, and his grace is amazing because he can take the painful, the hurtful things of this life, and through his grace, he can bring good out of them. God is sovereign over everything. There are some things in this life that are deadly by themselves. If you try to eat it, it will kill you. But if you take that something that is deadly and you mix it with something else, it is no longer harmful, it is helpful. And there are times that you can take something that is deadly by itself, mix it with something else, and it becomes delicious. And God's grace is like that. God's grace is able to take the the worst that could ever happen to you. And because His grace is sovereign, He's able to bring good out of it. And his grace is sustaining. What does that mean? His grace will see you through the difficult times of life. My wife and I learned that practically, personally, experientially when our 25-year-old son died suddenly, unexpectedly. We weren't ready for that. We weren't prepared for that. But God's grace sustained us. Held us up. God's grace wrapped around us to literally give us peace in the midst of a storm. God's grace is sustaining. And God's grace truly experienced is sanctifying. What does that mean? God doesn't pour his grace out on us 
so that we can stay in bondage to sin. No, God's grace is poured out on us so that we can be set free from the power of sin. And when God's grace is experienced in our life, listen, he sanctifies us. He sets us free from the power of sin. And oh, we begin to live a holy and a righteous life. Oh, to experience God's grace in all of its many forms. His saving grace, His sustaining grace, His sanctifying grace, His sovereign grace. Oh, God's grace. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and save from sin. We need to experience God's grace. The second thing that he tells us, and we have to hurry here, is we have to endure our present suffering. Peter tells us that the God of all grace uses temporary trials and suffering as a tool to prepare us for his eternal glory. You see, our suffering is always temporary, but our reward is eternal. The apostle Paul knew this better than anyone. Paul probably suffered more than any other Christian who has ever lived. And yet Peter said that the present suffering that he was going through was light and momentary. Now if you read the things that Paul went through, you wouldn't say they were light and momentary. You would say they were terrible, they were hard, they were painful. But Paul said, the pain that I'm going through, the suffering that I'm facing, it's nothing compared to what God has in store for me. You see, we don't focus on our suffering. We so focus on the reward. Third thing that Peter says here is we need to express God's love. He says, greet each other with with Christian love. Literally what this says is a kiss of love. Now here's the funny thing about that. You see, in, in Middle Eastern times, in biblical times, and still today in many Eastern countries, people greet each other with a kiss. I mean, they'll kiss each other on the cheek. Sometimes, I mean, sometimes, I mean, they kiss each other on the lips. I mean, it's, you know, they'll, 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 throw, they'll throw you in some countries there. And, and, so, and so in the early days of the church, I mean, they said you need to greet each other with, with this kiss of, of love. But then after a while, they put some stipulations on it. They said men have to kiss men and women have to kiss women. Obviously, there were some people that were abusing this a little bit. And after about 200 years, they did away with it altogether. They just, they just saw people were, people were going crazy with this, greet each other with a kiss of love. Now, what was Peter saying here? Was he saying that you and I, when we see another believer, we need to go up to them, we just need to smack them on the lips? That's not what he's saying. What he's saying here is that love isn't just verbalized. It's actualized. It's put into practice. Do you get that? Love isn't something I talk about. Love is something I do. In other words, what Peter is saying, I believe here, is that God's love flowing through us into the lives of other people is actually God's grace flowing through us. And so we experience God's love. We we live with the present suffering of this world, recognizing we've got something far better to look forward to. And we express love to one another, Christian love.
Now, my question for you this morning as we end this series is this. Have you experienced God's grace? Because listen to me. I'm convinced that there are a lot of people who come to church on a regular basis who have never experienced God's grace personally. They know about it. They sing about it. They can quote about it, but they've never experienced God's grace. They've never come to that point where they've understood that my best efforts are but filthy rags. I can never measure up to God's standard of holiness. And on my own, I am going to burn in hell forever. But because of God's grace, he has offered me forgiveness. And he's offered me a way out, and that way out is through Jesus alone. Not Jesus and being baptized, not Jesus and church attendance, not Jesus in good works. No, our salvation comes through Jesus. And when we experience that grace in our life, listen, hear me, it changes everything. It changes the way that we look at suffering. It changes the way that we live our life. It changes our desires for things. Everything changes when we experience the grace of God in our life personally. We so fall in love with our Creator who didn't destroy us but offered us redemption that we throw ourselves at His feet saying, I'm yours. It's grace. Have you experienced God's grace? If you haven't, don't leave here today without experiencing it. If you have, live like it. I want you to bow your head with me. With your head bowed, with your eyes closed. If you're here and you say, Rocky, I've, I've never truly experienced God's grace, but today I'm ready, I'm I know that my best is never good enough. And, and I don't want to use God's grace as an excuse for my sin. No, I, I, I want to fall in love with Jesus and live for him because of his grace toward me. If that's what you want to do today, then I encourage you to pray this prayer to him right now. God, I humbly come to you today. Acknowledging that I'm a sinner. I'll never be good enough. I know that's why Jesus came. Jesus, I know you came to this earth. I know you died on a cross. I know you rose from the dead to pay my sin debt so that I could experience God's grace. Today, I'm asking you to save me. I'm placing my faith in you. I'm giving my life to you. Fill me with your grace. Fill me with your spirit. From this moment on, Jesus, I want to give my life 
to loving you completely. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Thank you for saving me.